and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us today on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. In our lifetimes and those of our extended families, there have been all too many catastrophic events. World War II, the Holocaust, Hiroshima, Vietnam, to name only a few. And very much with us today, extreme weather events due to climate change and, of course, the COVID epidemic. Every one of them can involve a confrontation with death. But how do we cope individually and as a society? How do we move from being victims to survivors and then, as survivors, transform the experience in a way that builds a more secure future? It turns out that there are answers in our past. My guest today is Dr. Robert J. Lifton, a world-renowned psychiatrist and psychohistorian. Dr. Lifton has written over 20 books, but is perhaps best known for his studies of Nazi doctors, Hiroshima, thought reform, and cult behavior. A few years we spoke with him on this program about how Donald Trump and his followers had all the characteristics of a cult. Today we'll be talking about his latest book, Surviving Our Catastrophes, Resilience and Renewal from Hiroshima to the COVID-19 Pandemic. Dr. Lifton, thank you so much for returning to The Lowdown. I'm glad to talk to you. So we've, all of us in our lives, experienced trauma, and whether we choose to label it as such catastrophe, what's the difference between between being a victim of the catastrophe and a survivor? Uh, Well, when we have catastrophes uh, and we experiencing them, uh, we first experience ourselves in relation to the catastrophe as a victim. A victim is helpless, is acted upon, is harmed uh, psychologically and often physically. Uh, but there can be a transformation from that kind of victim to a life-enhancing survivor. And a life-enhancing survivor is uh, someone who has been transformed from a victim into a survivor, uh, someone who manages to get through that catastrophe, to join with others, and to follow what I call emergent leaders uh, in furthering the whole idea of survival. So survival becomes essentially uh, some form of acting more uh, with agency and sometimes with effectiveness. And I use the example of Hiroshima to illustrate this. It's not uncommon to be advised when we're suffering to try to make meaning out of that suffering. And and sometimes when we're grappling with an overwhelming situation, the last thing we can fathom, no less defined, is something finding meaning. Can you give us an example of your understanding of meaning? What what does it actually mean to make meaning uh, out of a catastrophe? Meaning is crucial. It's very important. We human beings 
are meaning-hungry creatures, and for survivors, that's doubly so. Survivors, uh, survivors seek some reason, some meaning, some narrative that helps them understand why they have been subjected to this catastrophe and some meaning given to it helps them through it. Uh, the meaning, for instance, that Hiroshima survivors could in many cases uh, achieve had to do with telling the full story about the weapon, about this extraordinarily destructive weapon. They were the ones who could do that. And they could then, from that uh, experience of meaning, go on to become active agents opposing the weapon. And when this was done collectively, especially leaders from them who understood this meaning and lived it out, uh, there could be a collective citywide expression of anti-bomb, anti-nuclear uh, energy. And that's what we saw happen with Hiroshima, so much so that when the recent experience with the UN, in which uh, it was decided by a UN committee that any stockpiling, not only using, but stockpiling of nuclear weapons uh, was a violation of international law. In coming to that position, the UN called upon uh, Hiroshima survivors who were prominent in what had emerged as a peace movement. So in that sense, that transformation from helpless victim to life-enhancing survivor is crucial. And uh, the meaning uh, involved uh, in uh, confronting the weapon becomes crucial to that transformation. You tell us that grief and pain, when shared, can become not only the seeds of healing, but activism. What is it about joining with others as opposed to bearing the pain individually that can lead to healing? Why do we need, what do we get from other survivors? Joining with others becomes crucial because if we are alone in it, uh, one can feel isolated and it's very hard to sustain that active survivor energy. But uh, I felt that survivors were so important to this meaning and to a legacy which they leave for others when their generation uh, is no longer present, that at the end of my Hiroshima book, I had a long section on survivors and their psychology, survivors as an entity, uh, when they become a collective force, shared feelings, shared energies, uh, a shared narrative, uh, and 
shared meaning about telling the story of the weapon and then opposing the weapon, when that happens, uh, they become uh, a very special and potentially wise, one can speak of survivor wisdom, potentially wise source of a peace movement, and that has happened. And that has happened with, as you know, survivors traveling, survivors of Hiroshima <clears throat> traveling throughout the world uh, to tell their story. And when they tell their story, they're doing it in a shared way uh, that both is a service to the rest of the world, but is also part of their own healing process. <laughs> If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood and WOMR. Today we're talking about what we can learn from survivors of the past to best endure the epic tragedies of our present and our future. My guest is psychohistorian Robert J. Lifton. His new book is Surviving Our Catastrophes, Resilience and Renewal from Hiroshima to the COVID-19 Pandemic. Dr. Lifton, among the many things that struck me in the book was that you tell us we're in the middle of a number of catastrophes right now, although many Americans shrug it off. We're all aware of climate change and the possibility of nuclear war. But but you tell us we need to make sense of the COVID-19 pandemic and that we're all, whether we recognize it or not, either victims or survivors. Can you explain? Yes. Um, if you have yourself experienced COVID, and especially long COVID, uh, or your family members have, or people very close to you, then you are immediate survivors of COVID. And you can, uh, and there are groups of COVID survivors now that have formed and uh, given various names uh, that relate to COVID survival, COVID survivors, uh, uh, widows and widowers of COVID survivors and so on. And these groups uh, become an immediate uh, uh, an immediate and very uh, pained source of knowledge. But that doesn't mean that the rest of us aren't being affected by COVID. Since all of us make some arrangements, whether it's just staying at home or moving uh, as my partner and I did uh, to uh, our places on the Cape, uh, uh, we are seeking to cope with death anxiety. It's from a distance, but and, and sometimes it's uh, very frequently not understood as that, but simply being afraid and concerned, afraid of and concerned about COVID means that we are experiencing fear of it, and that fear includes fear of death or death anxiety. And in that way, that fear of death and that death anxiety makes us uh, also involved with COVID and struggling with the death anxiety that it evokes. Uh, it's all the more difficult because uh, COVID uh, uh, doesn't manifest itself at the beginning 
uh, we we don't experience COVID or even uh, this uh, fear of it as death anxiety, but that's what it is. Now, part of the society's work now is to connect the immediate survivors I mentioned who themselves or the family had it and the more distant survivors, most of the rest of us who are trying to cope with death anxiety so that all of us are, in a sense, uh, deeply affected, significantly so, uh, and all of us need a kind of narrative and source of resistance to the death anxiety that the uh, pandemic evokes. With so much information available about the severity of coronavirus and its repercussions, some people to this day refuse to accept reality. So what happens when a major segment of society refuses to acknowledge the basic truths of a catastrophe? Well, precisely that, uh, the refusal to accept the truth of a of our catastrophe uh, with COVID, and in fact, the overall big lie that is created and disseminated by Trumpists and their allies. Uh, this uh, problem haunts society now. What we've discovered is that if the big lie is sufficiently repeated and constantly disseminated, it gets to be believed by uh, a troublingly large group of people. And that's furthered that disinformation by the fact that it tends to be uh, politically required by right-wing and Trumpist groups to in some way minimize COVID and also deny the effectiveness of vaccines for it, even when they're proven to be very effective. And that means we must constantly struggle against this disinformation by asserting the truth in various ways and by depending on our institutions uh, which disseminate truths those institutions are battered, but they can still be functional, as we see uh, in the uh, in the uh, in the struggle to indi- in the indictments that are made by uh, Jack Smith and by other uh, prosecutors, and that's happening and. Uh, I think those institutions, uh, although weakened by the Trumpists and their allies, still have function and narrative and force for us to call upon. You mention in the book an overlap between people who reject the reality of the pandemic and people who adopt paranoid conspiracy theories, white supremacists, QAnon believers, and the like. What's 
going on with these people, do you think? What do they get out of denying a very real catastrophe and creating imagined catastrophes of their own? Um, when they deny a real uh, catastrophe, they're attempting to minimize or deny the death anxiety from it. What they seek to get is a relief from the death anxiety. Uh, and uh, when they uh, deny the effectiveness of the vaccine, and even in some cases insist that the vaccine is harmful, they claim to be the owners of truth. This is what I call solipsistic reality. That means very simply that uh, reality becomes, for right-wingers and related Trumpists, reality becomes what the self seeks and needs rather than what is based on evidence. It's a denial of evidence uh, as well as of basic truth. And it's very dangerous to our society, and it has to be combated at every single uh, moment and in every single way. So in their own reality, they feel better. They feel powerful, even though it bears no resemblance to what's really going on. That's right. They feel that they own the truth. and. They can be the uh, arbiters of what a catastrophe is and what it is not. Uh, if you deny a catastrophe, you can't evolve survivor wisdom from that catastrophe. With Hiroshima, for instance, nobody could deny that the bomb was dropped there. Uh, and there could be the steps that I mentioned in developing uh, uh, a narrative of and meaning structure of telling what that bomb does and opposing it uh, when right-wingers and Trumpists deny the reality of the epidemic and the e effectiveness of the vaccine. They are putting forward a collective solipsistic form of truth and become the claimers who become uh, issue a claim to themselves own reality. And in that way, uh, they seek to control society and its general realities. Uh, they are unstable, but they're troublesome and dangerous. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. My guest is psychohistorian Robert J. Lifton. His new book is Surviving Our Catastrophes, Resilience and Renewal from Hiroshima to the COVID-19 Pandemic. Dr. Lifton, the book talks about the necessity to mourn. I had previously thought of mourning as an individual process. We mourn our parents, our family members, our animal companions. But you write that the failure or refusal to mourn has a political aspect and can lead to great violence, even revenge. Can you explain? 
Yes. Um, uh, mourning can be individual, and that's the way most of us think about it most of the time. But it also can be collective. Uh, and you may remember that when the Biden administration took office, there were large public scenes of mourning uh, in which uh, uh, there was uh, an approach to the uh, Lincoln Memorial and an effect to gather together people of the country who had all been threatened by death anxiety and give them an opportunity to mourn together. And then there was a second ceremony that the Biden administration had. And in that way, mourning can become collective. And when it becomes collective, uh, it can be a source of truth. Uh, if one mourns for what has been an actual capacity, one is expressing truth in that mourning and a narrative by which one is confronting the capacity. And uh, if one fails to do that, or the mourning, the, the mourning can be uh, an opposite kind of, that's why I called it the paradox of mourning. Morning can serve an opposite person, uh, uh, an opposite influence when you see in some extreme, uh, Islamic groups angry mourning and violence in relation to funerals of people who have been killed. Uh, so mourning, uh, has to be experienced as a group and collective and even a national process for it to become most effective. This administration is trying to do that. One of the problems is that the right-wingers and Trumpists in their claim to own reality uh, take on a kind of survivor mission themselves of preventing mourning and uh, uh, negating uh, the importance of COVID and of the uh, vaccine for it. Uh, and they see themselves as saving the society or making America strong again. But uh, they're increasingly questioned uh, because they're less and less believable in the face of evidence that we we all have. And finally, the other thing I would say about mourning, uh, I paid a lot of attention in my work to the Milai massacre, and in one sense, the Milai massacre by Americans or Vietnamese at that, at that small town uh, one morning in which uh, people were mowed down in large numbers up to 500 
was both a product of military policies and the experience of angry mourning on the part of American GIs who had lost buddies, uh, often to explosive devices, uh, and had no way to get back at the constantly invisible enemy who was there and not there. So the inability to mourn can be a source of violence and of frustration. Some years ago, and for many summers, you and your wife, BJ, Howard Zinn and his wife, Roz, Jack Hall and others, even I was a part of it in some years, used to stand silently in front of the Wellfleet Town Hall on August the 6th, Hiroshima Day. Can you talk about the meaning attached to that event, even yes. in a little town like Cape Cod? Yes. Uh, it was always a very tiny event, uh, likely to attract, uh, at most, 10 or 15 people. But it was symbolic of individual participation. Most of us who have participated in that event were expressing our own need to recognize the uh, terrible meaning of that first use of a nuclear weapon on uh, a, a, a human population. So the event had a significance for those of us who participated in it that was both personal and in that larger sense, a recognition of a historical turning point. Uh, it still occurs in uh, that little vigil, and I try to go to it uh, as much as I can because I believe in immediate uh, involvement in even the most quiet, and in this case a vigil, kind of protest to make known or to express our own sense of the change in history that occurred with the dropping of that bomb in Hiroshima. So I want to end with a question that you ask yourself in the book, or more accurately, that your daughter asked you when she was very young. Hiroshima, Auschwitz, mind control, suicide cults, my lie. Why do you study such terrible things? I mean, you could have done anything with your life. You could have been a sports writer and, and wrote about the Dodgers, who you love. Yeah. Why, why, do you, why is this your life's work? Uh, I have come to feel that the way that a society finds to survive its catastrophes is crucial to its future. Uh, I didn't have that good an answer for her when she asked the question, but that's the answer I would give now. Uh, so studying catastrophes is itself an act of resistance. 
and one's writing about it can be an act of resistance because it makes clear that there are alternatives to that uh, disaster or that um, catastrophe. And uh, I believe that very strongly, and uh, I continue to act upon that belief. Well, I want to thank you for talking with us today, and I want to wish you many more years of doing so. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye now. My guest today has been world-renowned psychiatrist and author Robert J. Lifton. I want to thank Matthew Dunn for his tech work on the show. Surviving Our Catastrophes was recently published by the New Press. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on how to find hope in a catastrophic century, one interview at a time. Bye for now. Thank you.